0: Welcome back to The Growth Guide. Today we have Joe Quattrone. Joe was discovered by Gary Vee in 2013, and then in 2014, he took a job working under him. In a period of about two and a half years, Joe built a team of 100 people that was producing nearly 20 million in revenue annually. Joe left Vayner earlier this year so he could launch brands in the cannabis space and bring his knowledge of content marketing and social media to small businesses as a fractional CMO. Thank you, Joe, for joining us today. Thank you, Keegan. Glad to be here. So the first thing I want to ask, what is Gary V like in real life?
1: Um, he's pretty much just like you see online, um, with a few exceptions. Um, I had a, <clears throat> I had the luxury of getting to know him uh, quite a bit before he got mega famous, so he was still famous. He had been writing books back in 2013, 2014 when I met him. but. He still hadn't had his mil- first million uh, followers on Instagram at that point. Uh, actually, I was with him when he crossed over a million. We were at a business meeting down in uh, New Jersey somewhere. We were at Campbell's Soup headquarters when he crossed over a million Instagram followers. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's a great dude. He's family-oriented, uh, family, family oriented, loves the Jets. Um, you know, I, He's built his company to be very family-oriented and all the people kind of feel like, you know, like part of the family. I don't know. It's, it's kind of weird. Uh, a lot of people called VaynerMedia a cult, but uh, <laughs> I'd say it's less of a cult and it's more just, you know, Gary's one of the smartest minds there is when it comes to social media. So we all kind of, you know, come from his philosophical tree and we believe the same things he believes, but I wouldn't necessarily call us a cult.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. So it seems kind of like he's super authentic in social media. It's not like he's playing a personality or he's acting or anything along those lines.
1: No, I think he just he's he's he talks like a million miles an hour. So, um I don't think like a lot of people get tripped up because they like to kind of compare things that he said throughout the years and call him a hypocrite or contradict some of the things. And I don't think it's necessarily like that. I think he just he likes to draw comparison and analogies to a lot of things and that's the way he storytells. So, um he's going to, whatever he's feeling in the moment, he's going to say, and sometimes it's contradictory to things he said in the past, but more often than not, uh, he's right about a lot of things. So, (laughs) um, you know, just, you can sit around and and pick him apart all you want, but I've, I've met far too many people that listen to what he has to say and have gotten rich because of his
0: his advice. So I try not to really, you know, pick him apart too much. Fair enough. So transitioning to you, what made you want to pursue a career in social media to begin with?
1: Uh I didn't. I didn't know that it was even a thing. <laughs> so uh, it was an interesting story. I got out of grad school when I was 29. I was a little bit older when I went to college in the first place. I took three years off after high school before I went to college because I had no idea what I wanted to do. Once I figured out I wanted to be in marketing, I kind of like shot through the system, graduated from undergrad in a couple of years, took a job as a salesperson just to get some sales some experience uh, after college and then I went back to grad school and finished in two years. And, um, you know, when I got out in 2008, um, that economy, like the, the, you know, the housing market crashed, it was probably the worst time I could ever be leaving college and taking a job. So I wound up taking a job for next to nothing money-wise. I had to, <laughs> I had to move back in with my parents. It was, uh, it was in the outskirts of DC. It was, but it was a really cool job. It was at it was at Audi of America, and um, the agency that I had worked with was called Venables Bell and Partners. And in the automotive industry back in those days, and even still to this day, um, they typically will hire um, a young account, account executive like myself and staff them on the client's grounds, if you will. Okay, so that was me. Um, but because I kind of look younger than I. And actually, I'm, like, I'm 44 years old right now, but most people think I'm not that old. <laughs> imagine, yeah, no me, way. imagine me at 29. Most people thought I was like 23. So uh, Scott Keogh was the CMO at the time. He pulled me into his office. Um, this was circa June of 2008, a month after I started, I think. And he threw a, an article down on his desk. It was a New York Times article that was talking about Barack Obama and uh, the assumption in the business community back in those days was that Obama was going to win the presidency. And Scott's kind of probe to me was if this guy is going to become leader of the free world using Facebook groups, <laughs> I wonder <laughs> if we can sell cars. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was his challenge to me. And I, you know, he wanted me to start a little bit of a research effort. And I did that. I worked after hours uh, for free and I wasn't allowed to tell my agency because he didn't want to pay them. <laughs> <So> <laughs> from like 7 p.m. to like 1 a.m., um, you know, after hours. So I was doing long distance with my girlfriend at the time, so it didn't really matter. I was like way invested in my job. And um, after a while, he liked some of the reports I was bringing back to him. He liked kind of some of the insights I was coming up with. And he was like, let's. Build a plan and let's go take it to the germans because i'm not giving you any money <laughs> and so, uh, so i built a plan and we took it to the germans uh, backstage at the new york auto show in 2009 and they approved it and they they funded our startup so we had some seed money to start a social media practice and uh and that meant part of my plan was hiring an agency hiring some inter- internal staff to manage it all and um, I wound up becoming the first one of the first account directors on the business. Uh, I got shipped up to New York and I started working for the agency we hired and then <laughs> I ran Audi from there for a while. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so I, didn't, I never really intended to get into it. Um, I just happened to kind of luck into
0: it, I guess. I was in the right place at the right time. That's, uh, that's definitely a story. It's, I'm a huge car guy. So you working for Audi, especially in that role, I think, I think that's super cool. That's one of my dream clients is like a big automotive manufacturer. So,
1: mm-hmm. Well, you got to get in there soon because they're not going to be making cars <laughs> for much longer. They'll be making nope. trains and
0: buildings. and all kinds of- <laughs> <laughs> So can you talk about a campaign that the audience would recognize that you've uh, ran in the past? Sure.
1: Uh, I've worked on like eight Super Bowl campaigns. I've worked on, um, let me see, is your audience skew young? I'm trying to think about how
0: old my stuff might be to them. Well, and in 26, uh, what's that? Sorry, we're eight, we're like kind of like 18 to like 35, 36. Got gotcha. you.
1: Uh, I'd say one of the cooler stories is uh, in my Vayner years, um, 2016, the Chicago Cubs won the World right. Series. And it was the first time they won the world series in like a hundred (laughs) years. And it was like a big (laughs) deal. And, uh, and Harry Carey was their old announcer. The guy, he was like the famous sportscaster for the Chicago Cubs. But what a lot of people don't know is, Back in the '80s and '90s, when he was calling games for the Cubs, he was also officially endorsed by Budweiser, which was one of my clients. And um, so we, uh, Budweiser clients, came to us uh, a couple of weeks before the World Series, and uh, they wanted to, like, if the Cubs were going to win, they wanted to be the brand that had the best campaign. and <laughs> They wanted to commemorate it, the, the you know, uh, with some sort of a viral video or something like that. So my team came up with this amazing idea, um, and uh, we pulled it off in record time. So the idea was to go into the official archives of Cubs games and pull the audio tracks of Harry Carey calling all kinds of different games from the 80s and 90s. And essentially lay that over top of the last out of the world series as a voiceover. And the name in in the basically the premise was harry Carey calls the last out of the world series to give that as a gift to cubs fans uh that was an unexpected surprise that really won the world series in the world series marketing uh you know kind of aftermath that we were competing with like nike and stuff like that in the tribute space for that one um you can look that up still to this day if you wanted to go um if you wanted to link your audience up to it if you just google Harry Carey, Budweiser, World Series, or whatever—you'll uh, you'll be taken to ours. You probably get a Vimeo link. You won't see like the actual spot that or the actual thing that we ran back in that day that accumulated like fifty million video views and four hundred thousand Facebook comments because we had to take it down because of licensing, you know, rights mm-hmm. rights management. So it can only stay up for a, for a little while. But it got reposted a bunch of times all over the internet. So it's somewhere swimming out there, if you will. But yeah, there's like a whole host of those on the Budweiser side. We did a lot of cool work for Stella Artois. We did something with Matt Damon um, back in, I wanna say it was like 2017, 2015, something like that. Um, we did a kind of like a gotcha video where we we had, it was international, we were we shot in six different countries. And um, it was interesting, we had all these, these uh, people we had like kind of hidden cameras trained on them and we were inside of restaurants and we did a gag on them where we had the waiters and waitresses, uh, tell, or servers, I should say, uh, tell those customers that they didn't have any water in the restaurants. (laughs) And then, (laughs) uh, so the patrons that were on the hidden cameras kind of freaked out and, um, and they just were started becoming the biggest divas about like not having water or whatever. And then we had like inside of the booth, we had this led TV screen and Matt Damon's head popped up on the screen for all of them. And he basically told them like, Wow. It's, it's interesting when you don't have water, right? The basic human necessity. And then he started going in on like, well, you know, in certain villages in Africa, it takes women six hours to get water every day and six hours to walk back. Uh, actually, I think it was three hours there and three hours. Either way, it was six hours in a day to get water for your family. And he was like, how would you feel if like your sister wasn't able to have a job because she had to spend all day getting water for your family? <laughs> and it just made them feel like absolute you know, garbage. (laughs) Um, But it really kind of underscored the fact that there's massive human suffering out there in the world, like, you know, access to clean drinking water. And um, most of us here in the Western world don't think twice about it. We don't think about these, like some people like run their dishes for five minutes while they're off doing other things, you know, like we just take it so so much for granted. And that was just, uh, that was a, a corporate social responsibility campaign that we were doing between uh, Stella Artois and water.org to to generate awareness for that. And it was one of those things that we did for multiple years in a row where we had limited edition packaging with like Stella Artois six packs with like a free chalice of water and stuff like that when you bought it and stuff like that. So um, I don't know. I've done a lot of stuff like (laughs) go on for hours. (laughs) I
0: was was just going to say, I'm sure you can go on for the next six hours about the campaigns that you've ran, but transitioning a little bit, what what do you think is the biggest mistake agencies or businesses make with social media campaigns in the first place?
1: Uh, Not really getting into like, well, I mean, this is probably more of a cliche, but I I feel like it hasn't been fully eradicated from marketing circles yet, so I'm gonna keep harping on it. Um, I think it's also because I've worked in social media for 17 years now, like I've seen this all too many times. Um, there's still a, a bit of laziness when it comes to social media that uh, really ought, you know, ought not to be there at this day and age. But if you're still a marketer and you're cutting corners and you think that you can develop this big linear TV spot and then just shove it into social and expect it to work, it's going to be dead on arrival, right? So, like the platforms don't work like TV networks. Uh, in fact content that works in TikTok is the exact opposite of a TV spot. (laughs) So (laughs) you can't wait till the last three, three seconds to get your point across. You have to do it in the first three seconds. Uh, you have to have a hook, you have to have, um, you know, you have to be platform relevant. You have to be using the right types of captions, the right types of, uh, you know, songs embedded into the, the content. So I think, um, I think that the problem that they make is they try to they're not they're not consumer centric enough, right? Sometimes they are when it comes to like research and development and making the product, but then they get lazy when it comes to figuring out how to communicate with those customers, those very same customers that they research to death to try to build a product for them, um, and uh, and and they try to you know because they spend so much money on R and D and getting the product off the ground, they leave next to no budget for marketing, and so you know, you're left with these really half-hearted efforts and it's, it's usually more like I'm going to pay for the one thing, which is like the 32nd TV spot that I get to control the creative of the branding of, and then I'm just going to put it everywhere. And that's just, I don't know what to tell you. It's never going to work on social media. It's just not, it hasn't, it's never really done that well on social media and it will continue to bomb on social media.
0: Fair enough. Yeah. Like it's, for us it's a, like like you said you need to be platform relevant and what works on TikTok as an example might not work on Instagram like TikTok is more like i'm just going to shoot a quick video post it right away but Instagram especially if you're running ads you want the more higher produced videos. like yeah, little yeah, little thing that it
1: works better in reverse uh, i had okay. we had we had an experience on Budweiser back in the day where we made a really good or we we got we were we had a really good run in general and we were doing I think we had like in an 18 month span, we pushed eight videos viral or something like that. Got like over a billion impressions. So the the client came to us and was like, "Well, you're doing so well. We want to give you our TV work." And we were like, eh, "I don't know if we want that, but okay, let's let's if we were to do this, this is how we might do it." And so um, it was really interesting. Uh, they needed a 30 second spot, and it needed to be very focused on the breweries, because at the time a lot of people in the country were saying that Budweiser wasn't really American. It was owned by, you know, a Belgian, Brazilian multinational, which is not untrue. Um, but we do I mean, I say we, I haven't worked on the brand over six years. <laughs> um, but um our argument was, yeah, we're owned by a multinational corporation, but there's 12 breweries here in the United States and that's where we brew beer and it's American workers and it's American water that's going into the process and American ingredients. And, you know, even though our bank account is in a different country, like you're still drinking American beer. Right. So, um, the funny thing is, is we had a Instagram post, that back then, I think it was before Reels even existed. I think it was the IGTV or something like <laughs> that. We had a post that was like a six second GIF on Instagram. <laughs> Essentially that was just a bunch of super cuts that showed all of our different breweries and it had a caption under it or whatever, proudly brewed in America or whatever. So we took that six second GIF and we slowed it down to, fit, to, to be 15 seconds, which was enough of a length to go into a TV spot and we just took the gift and we threw it into TV for like I don't know 13 week cycle or something like that it crushed it did awesome mm-hmm. from a TV metric standpoint um, and that's because you know in in that type of a medium right in in, t- in television we didn't have to overthink things people aren't really looking at the TV when they're consuming TV ads they're subliminally consuming the content right so what are the things that you need to get right you need to get the music really right, like that. That would be a similarity with like a TikTok, but in a different way. It's got to be audible enough where you can hear it across a room. Uh, you've got to have something that is upbeat. Uh, so like a nice rock and roll track typically works pretty well. Uh, and then you've got to use voiceover effectively. So you can't just like not say stuff. You can't you can't not tell the customer what you want them to take from the super or from this actual TV spot. Um, because if their heads are buried in an iPhone and they can only hear your spot, your job in that moment is to brainwash them, right? So the things that need to come across are rock, 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 track, rock, track, rock, track, Budweiser, proudly brewed in America, right? So (laughs) then you just drill that, right? The, the way that it gets it, it bored into your head is by having like a 43 frequency in two weeks, right? You want to be every commercial break for like a bunch of different TV shows, and you know, following that consumer around the TV dials, uh, and if you if you hit that message enough, eventually it'll just get bored into their head that Budweiser's brewed in America, right? Like you don't that, but you don't need to tell a story that's like, you know, an Academy Award-winning story. You don't have to re you don't have to tell a million-dollar production story. In that you could, we literally took a GIF from Instagram and threw it on TV, and it worked. You know? <laughs>
0: Okay that that's interesting. I think I remember seeing that. Obviously I'm Canadian, but like there was there's a lot of stuff like the brewery stuff. I can think of a handful of things when I was younger it would show up and show up on TV here.
1: I launched a product in Canada actually. So hey, I, I love the, the the Great White North. Uh, I was at one point in my career I worked on Tim Hortons a bit. So I would get a, <laughs> But in, in my Budweiser days, there's a product now that you might be more familiar with called Budweiser Zero. Yep. But Back in those days when I was working on it, we launched that product in Canada and in the UK and its name was Budweiser Prohibition Brew. Uh, That was the test market beer. The front runner, the the forerunner to Budweiser Zero was Budweiser Prohibition Brew and Canada was a test market for us.
0: Okay, so going back to you and kind of what you're doing currently, why did you go into the cannabis space?
1: Uh, a lot of different reasons, <laughs> um, well, I stopped drinking like six years ago, and uh not because I was an alcoholic or anything, although it was more of a cultural thing. I was working on massive beer portfolios, and beer was at my fingertips whenever I wanted it. Um, I just had young kids didn 't want to be drunk didn 't want to be hung over around them. My doctor told me that I should knock it off with the booze because it 's not good for you and uh so eventually, I was just like, all right, you know this is They're probably right like i should probably (laughs) not drink anymore and uh and i didn't like being drunk or hungover so i i I took the plunge and i uh i uh got sober but um it wasn't really all that difficult you know it wasn't one of those things where i I wouldn't necessarily call myself an alcoholic i think i got sober for more health reasons which i find to be like far more the case with most people like a lot of people when, when you tell them you're sober they think you wrapped your Car around a tree, or in a twelve-step program, or whatever, <laughs> you. and uh, and that's just not true. Like most yeah. most people, I mean, it is true to some extent, but it's not the whole story. There's way more people out there that have far more diverse reasons for not drinking than that. And um, you yeah. know, um, a couple years into my sobriety, I linked up with one of my high school friends. We he was another guy that had a nice high end career in marketing and was working all over the country and stuff like that. We linked up at a bar. I was drinking a non-alcoholic beer, he was drinking something else. We both kind of came to the to terms with like the fact that cannabis was starting to get infused into beverages because we had seen, I think it was Stone Brewery or some oh, it was Lagunitas down in San Diego. They had infused a non-alcoholic beer with cannabis and we were just like what is this? This is amazing. <laughs> you mean <laughs> tell me you can drink something that tastes like beer, but get high and not get drunk? <laughs> like, <laughs> that eliminates the hangover, that eliminates like the smell of booze. You could drive a car still. Like, there's so many different like ramifications of that. And uh, a couple months after that, he hit me up and was like, Hey, I've got this idea for a seltzer product that has cannabis in it. And he was like, You wanna start it up with me? And I was like, Yes, I do. <laughs> Let's figure that out. And it's not, it's not really, it wasn't really cause I'm a huge cannabis consumer either. I'm really not mm-hmm. like it used to be when I was a lot younger. Uh, but I stopped smoking weed when I was like 18, 19 years old. And, uh, I still haven't really even come around on it that much. I, I'll, I'll take a gummy here and there, but like, I don't smoke anything. I don't, I do some, I have some CBN, CBG topical type stuff. Uh, for like muscle relief and stuff like that, but I'm not a massive consumer of it. Um, But I think the difference between alcohol and cannabis for me is, uh, I think, the potential benefit for society. So when I think about alcohol, now that I've worked in the industry for a long time, and I've been away from the industry for so long, and I've done a ton of research, and I've also been on the sober side of things, it's clearer now to me than it ever has been before. There's nothing redeemable about alcohol. It is not, it's not, it's not going to do anything for you except for hurt your body. Um, whereas the cannabis plant, um, depending on how you use it, right. Um, it actually can have a lot of benefit for your body. You could think about it as a borderline wellness product, right. Especially when it comes to thinking about certain demographics, like veterans or young people, even like I think about, I have four kids and I think about how much screen time they're gonna be getting over the next 20 years. And I see how many people that are in your your age bracket now that kind of grew up with this stuff in their face and uh, you know are just, they're on more antidepressants, they're on more SSRIs, they're on more ADHD medicine, OCD medicine than any generation previously. Uh, it's not their fault, obviously, like they grew up with a different type of technology at their fingertips. Um, but when i think about that i'm like i also have a very he- healthy skepticism for government in general as well as big medicine and big pharma and i'm mm-hmm. like i don't know do would i rather have my kids grow up and take cannabis to relieve their anxiety or some massive drug that's developed in a lab <laughs> like I, I don't know um i think i'd probably prefer them to smoke a joint than uh, yep. go and be stuck on some kind of an antidepressant for the rest of their life. Um, So I, I, I do it for that reason. And then also there's some commercial components to it, right? Like I've seen, I've seen the underbelly of the beer world. I know what mergers and acquisitions in that category look like. And I know that the next big, huge frontier is cannabis. And it's more so than you can even imagine, right? Like it's, Once we start getting closer and closer to federal legalization here in the States, not so much Canada, because you guys don't have as much population, but here in the States, we have 350 million people and a massive alcohol problem. (laughs) Um, Once we get closer to all 50 states being legal and once there's safe banking and once the insurance uh, companies are able to insure cannabis companies, you're going to see... Brands that have been around in the cannabis space for five to 10 years that uh, that know what they're doing and are operating in multiple states, they're going to get bought for quarter quarter of a billion, half a billion, billion dollars, depending on how big they are. Uh, so yeah, there's a, a commercial reason why I got into this as well. Like, uh, and, and it's not that far flung to see other alcohol executives getting into this industry. And, and with good reason, like a lot of us have seen how alcohol is regulated and we believe Cannabis is going to get regulated in a very similar way. So, you have to understand how to work within a multi tiered system of regulation. And that's what alcohol executives will bring to cannabis.
0: Okay. You're 100% on the commercial side, because I have some connections to some VCs in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And constantly they're talking about there's a, quite a bit of money starting to flow into the cannabis space, especially mm-hmm. from like you're starting to see venture capitalist money going in. You, I agree with you that like, it's a lot bigger industry than anybody can imagine.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough though, cause it's like a cash poor industry. Cause you, yeah. because you've had, you know you haven't really had historical ability to take on massive investments because where are you gonna put the money, right? Like yeah. um, you've also got dispensaries that are hiding money in safes and, you know protecting themselves with their own artillery and stuff like that. <laughs> but that's because banks aren't allowed to take your money. And that's because yeah. you can't get the money insured. You can't, you know, like there's a whole host of issues that come with the illegality of it federally um, that make it really tough for people. So like typically when we've got money in the past in the cannabis industry, it's not coming from the institutions as much. It's starting to be, it's starting to change a little bit now with VCs and private equity firms and stuff like that. But by and large, it was family offices. It was Mm -hmm. wealthy families writing checks into these things. And then, you know, then it's just doing the money game, keeping little sums of
0: money all over the place. (laughs) So a couple last questions. First, I want to know what's the craziest thing that you've done or seen in your career, because you've, you were going on and on and I want to learn a little bit more, but what's the craziest thing that you've seen or done
1: craziest thing I've seen or done define. What do you mean by crazy? Cause I could take this in a number of different ways. Like, like, let's go
0: like kind of mind blowing.
1: Mind blowing. Um, okay. Uh, I don't know how like interesting this will be to your audience, but, um, so I've worked on like eight or nine Super Bowl spots. Right. Um, but, the funniest thing, well, not the funniest thing, the craziest thing, I guess you could say, is uh, I've also built and in, 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 uh, constructed all of these war rooms, right? Like these are like massive operations with 20, 25 people like manning Twitter and Google and all these different things, really prepping for the volume and influx of traffic that are gonna break the back end of their website, that are gonna, you know, explode Twitter and have to have all these things that have to be responded to and stuff like that. But I actually had videos, I don't know what happened. This is like back on my like iPhone 3 or something like that. So I don't know <laughs> where this content is nowadays, but I, I do remember a couple Super Bowls where I would go into the war room and when our spot would air, I would take video of our tweet deck instances and Tweets, once our commercial went, we had a hashtag on the back of it. And we were so this is good information for your audience. My my team on Audi was actually the first, we were the first brand to ever do a Twitter hashtag at the end of a Super Bowl spot, like as a CTA. And that became a massive trend over the next couple of years. But one thing we did when we when we created that effect, if you will, was we were documenting the video of what would happen to Twitter if like a hundred million people saw your hashtag (laughs) and uh it was a it was a constant flood like for i don't know a good 10 minutes it was just nothing but like a constant scroll like at high hypersonic speed of people blowing up twitter using our hashtag and um i think at the end of the day like after 24 hours we got almost like 30 million people like 30 million not 30 million unique people but 30 million usages of that hashtag and um, and it makes for quite a interesting next couple of days when you're trying to respond to all that because you don't you got to make heads and tails of who's like what is your system for responding to it um, and for me it's always well everybody gets something right they get the, a like on their comment or something like everybody gets almost like a read receipt. But realistically, when you're talking about that kind of volume, like the best you can hope for is I need a filtering mechanism so I can get to like the top 1% of influence so that at mm-hmm. least the people with the most influence, you know, see that I'm trying to respond to their content within within a timely fashion and the rest of them will try to figure out how to like Delegate out to like a hundred people, and they can all get responded to or whatever. But that that was kind of wild. Those early days of Super Bowl social media <laughs> advertising, uh, seeing just and it wasn't just the Twitter feed that was blowing up. Like watching physical websites just clamp up because they can't deal with the traffic, just get buckled under the pressure. Like within seconds of your Super Bowl spot going live,
0: <laughs> that's crazy. Lastly, what's the best piece of business advice you've received
1: best piece of business advice ah oh, okay i I'll, I'll I'll tell you this one because most people think it came from Gary, but it didn't it came but it was one thing I told Gary in my interview with him. He asked me um, what's the most important thing that you can have in business and I said self-awareness. And the reason I said self-awareness is because I just got done work, You know, run. I had a run of six or seven years working with Audi. And one of my heroes in the industry was Scott, who was the CMO that I worked with to build our original social media plan. And the reason I said self-awareness in that instance was because I had the best example of somebody that was self-aware in Scott and what i mean by that is he was when he engaged me to work with him and bring social media to the Audi brand he didn't have to do that he could have worked with anybody he could have picked somebody like 10 years more senior than me he could have picked somebody with a lot more of a pedigree it was a big assignment um but he knew that he he saw something in me and he knew how serious i would take it and, and when we would talk about it in years, past and like years after the fact, um, it wasn't lost on him that like, he knew what position he was in and he knew what position I was in and he didn't let it go to his head. He understood that him giving me a chance was a big deal and you know, I couldn't be more great, more gracious, uh, of him him doing that. Like it really put my career on a completely different trajectory. And and so when I told Gary that I was like, it's got to be self-awareness because you've got to be in, in, in all these different stages and ages. You've got to be fully aware. You got to be cerebral and understand who you are in the mix and who the people are around you. And, um, and if you get a big at bat, you got to know what to do with it, you know? And if you give somebody a big at bat, you've got to know what they should do with with it, or you got to know what the life lesson is you're trying to teach them, you know? So, uh, those moments were never too big for me. And, um, and, and fortunately I had mentors like Scott who, who knew when to challenge people and knew who they were in the mix and what that meant to a junior person.
0: That's awesome advice, and I think that rings true, especially for a lot of a lot of younger people in my position, where it is kind of, feel like my generation, because I'm 22, and kind of like the 18 and 24, it's a big thing of the online businesses, and it can be fast money in some instances, and a lot of times it goes to people's heads. Like me personally, like I see all over my social media, guys my age, driving Lamborghinis, flexing, just crank back and like douchebags. But it's the lack of self-awareness. And like you said, understanding who you are in the mix is if you can kind of hone back in on that and realize like you have a genuine opportunity in front of you to build a real business rather than just blowing all your money on XYZ.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I try not to pick on Gen Z too much because <laughs> too easy of a target, to be honest with me. But, oh yeah. It, you know, I think just, I guess if I had to give you like a one B or not just you, but like your audience too is be patient. Like it's not something you need. You don't need to have it figured out tomorrow, right? Everybody wants to finish the race immediately. Trust me, you're 22 years old. Like you got the race is long, you know, like <laughs> uh, just try to have a good head on your shoulders. Keep, keep that head on a swivel, make sure you're aware of what's going on around you. But like, don't try to finish the race too fast. Like Gary always talks about, like, it's not about the outcome. It's about the process, you know, like you're going to be gone one day and you're going to wish you slowed down, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, relish it, enjoy it, savor it, you know, like being in the twenties is awesome. It's going to feel like it sucks sometimes because you're going to look at your bank account and you're gonna be like, what the fuck? But <laughs> you know, you've got something that
0: everybody my age wants, which is more time than me.
1: You
0: know. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you, Joe, so much for joining us. And everything that Joe mentioned will be linked in the show notes. So thanks again.
1: You're welcome.